I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And then he starts to go into, please, please. And if you look close enough, when he says, please, the officer with his knee on his neck smirks. He smiles. It's this feeling of authority. They need to have authority over somebody because that's how they feel powerful. Welcome to Ellen the Great Podcast. I'm Ellen Wanjiro, and I am conquering the unknown one episode at a time. It has been a challenging two weeks, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and quite honestly, physically, as it all relates to George Floyd's murder. I've been plagued with a motley assortment of feelings, sadness, fury, defeat, heartbreak, distrust, paranoia, resentment. I mean, the list goes on. The video of George Floyd has been televised incessantly. And it's something about the image of a Black man and all his power and all his being. And that white officer in his serve and protect uniform with all his weight on George Floyd's neck, unfazed, like that Black life didn't matter. Something about that visual took me back to 400 years ago as if I were there in, in the antebellum era. Modern day public lynching. And as demoralizing as it was for us as Black people, as a human race, really, we watched that happen. It happened. And it is traumatic. And the thing about trauma is it's a lasting shock. It's an experience that occupies space in your spirit forever. So let's list the level of current trauma we as a race are dealing with, not beginning our generational trauma. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Christian Taylor, Alton B. Sterling, Paul O'Neill, Keith Lamont Scott, Laquan McDonald, Akai Gurley, Walter L. Scott, Freddie Gray, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Samuel Dubose, Philando Castile, Brianna Taylor, Tatiana Jefferson, Terrence Crutcher, Ahmaud Aubrey, and the ones we know nothing about. And I can count the number of convictions on half a hand. Let that sink in. And so the questions that have been bouncing around in my head, and there have been many, are, what is it about the color of our skin that makes us a threat, an equal, less than? Why is there little to no regard for Black lives? Why does my hoodie scare you? Or the braids in my hair, my presence, my dialect, my energy, my history? Why am I deemed as a threat or different? Because the aforementioned makes you feel uncomfortable. And believe me, I recognize that these are rhetorical questions because I'd venture to say that they don't even know why. My whole heart and soul goes out to George Floyd as we witnessed his demise while calling out for his deceased mother. It's almost like he could see her, like he knew he was on his way to her, so he was calling out to her. And we watched that. And watching that made me think of the day my grandmother passed away. My mother and I were in the room with her, and she was holding on for dear life. And my mother, in her moment of despair and sadness, said to her mother, it's okay, let go. And within minutes, she passed away. And I bring that up to say that that was such an intimate moment 
watching my mother's mother transition and the fact that a whole nation witnessed George Floyd's transition in, in the violent manner that it was presented. That in itself is traumatic for him, for his family, for his children, for us, for the people that videotaped that and witnessed that in real time. That was a moment that we needed not see. That was a moment that needed not happen. But yet here we are, and this is what it is. My prayers go out to his family, his children, to those that are for us and understand the fundamental concept of the Declaration of Independence. Thank you for your support and your solidarity. I've been thinking a lot about the Black men in my life, how and what they must be feeling and thinking, because it matters to me. Their lives matter to me. And being able to relate to each other is part of the relationship we have as a human race. And so I decided to ask, how do you feel? And what, if anything, can the women in your life do to help? Um, my name is Alan Waroe. I'm about 20 years old. It's a, it's a very stressful situation right now. It's a lot of distrust between the people that are supposed to protect us. And what they're doing right now is not, not the right thing. I don't know. It's not like happening in my area. But as, as I travel, you can see it more, more, more often and more in frequency. So it's like, it feels like my area is a little secluded, but like when, when I go out of, out of town, out of state, it feels like it's, it's, there's a lot of distrust and there's a lot of fear and just wanting to live my life. You know what I mean? This is giving me like a feeling of paranoia. Like what's going to happen after this? Are the police going to act better now or are they going to act worse and seeing the, the consequences that can happen from one person making a mistake and now it's like nationally, nationally a problem and nationally it's protested. Um, some of my... my White friends have asked me questions and like how they're supposed to react. Like some people don't really want to be the people on social media posting about it. Don't feel it's in their responsibility to do it. But I tell them like if you stay silent, like if you know people that are close to the situation, like police officers, just ask them like what their morals are, how they feel, like see where they they are. And if you see them doing the wrong thing, then maybe they shouldn't be in that job. Maybe you should talk to them personally. Because if you care about African American people like that, then you wouldn't let that happen. But a lot of people have, have shown support towards my African-American friends. We've had conversations about what, what we should do. There's not much we can do as, as the quarantine's happening right now, but like as continue to just be strong and be smart about like what you're doing and like don't be doing anything that's out of the, out of the norm or necessary, unnecessary. There's not much more you guys can do. You guys do your best to make us feel safe. But uh, I, don't, I don't really know right now because it's so fresh and it's, being, it's happening now, like both black women and, and men more frequently to men. So I would just say it's unsafe for both of us and the better we do to stay stay safe and not do anything illegal. And if you do do anything illegal, be as cautious as possible when you're dealing with police officers because you don't know who you're dealing with. That's probably the best bet. Like just remind your, your fellow black people to just be as cautious as you can around, around people with badges and, and guns, you know? It's like any one of us could be that person and like all those people around could have helped, but like they're feeling, they're fearing for their lives too. And the police officers behind them even, like, discussed me kind of as, as much as the person that had the knee. Because he, he was watching them. They were watching them, like, with the altercation, with the knee on the neck. And they could have helped, too. So, like, it's more like we can't really do anything. I feel helpless in the situation because there's not much you can do without seeming as a threat yourself and then getting into legal trouble yourself, you know? My name is Brian Maroe, and I'm 24 years old. 
Um, how I feel about the, the George Floyd case is just, at this point, it's just a slap to the face. There's no justice for just African-Americans in this, in this country, you know, where, you know, you have cops blatantly just killing black men, yet in this facing no repercussions because of that. You have, you have overly aggressive actions towards black males and black females, and there's no repercussions because of that. So it just shows you that this is a systematic injustice that just has been going on for, for centuries now. And um, the specific case is just so reminiscent of the Eric Garner case, you know, the I, the I can't breathe line, you know, how many times does a person have to say they can't breathe before you believe them? You know, you're, you're kneeling on a person's neck for eight minutes. The person is in handcuffs where they're no longer a threat, yet you still feel the need to put your full body weight on this person, right? Where there's three against one, you know, do you, are, are, you, are you that afraid of a black man that you feel as though that he can take three of you guys on in handcuffs? You know, these things just don't add up, you know, it's where, where it just leads you to believe there's no other choice or no other option to believe. Then these people are just, just racist. You know, they're just basically, they're paid hitmen to decrease the amount of black men in this country and women in this country. And that leading to, you know, the subsequent racial tensions and just the rioting and looting that's going on in this country. I'm completely just on board with that because at this point, what else can we really do to get our, our voices heard where we just don't get brushed off, you know, through all these other cases, Sandra Bland, Eric, Eric Garner, you know, like... And many, many more, even names we have, we haven't even heard, you know, there's, we, we make hashtags, we, we peacefully protest, yet nothing happens, you know, it's just something that's talked about for a little bit and then disappears and life goes on. And then we have another killing of a black man for absolutely no reason, right? Comparing these killings to um, the mass shootings that has gone on, you know, there hasn't been a black man who's, who there's been a mass shooting for. While on the other hand, there's these white teenagers, you know, white people who have uh, had these mass shootings and they've come out in just handcuffs, you know, where it seems as though like the cops don't deem them as uh, as aggressive, even though they just massacred 10, 20, 30, 50 people seconds ago. Yet once once they are they no longer have their gun, they feel as though that these people are just you no, know, they have the right. They have the right to, uh, to a fair trial. Yeah, you know, you pull somebody off for a traffic stop, you know, you feel like this person is so aggressive that you have to shoot them because I, I just, it's not like I can't even put into words because I just don't, I don't understand how, how they come to these conclusions. So, you know, if, if we're going back to the riots and looting, um, I feel it's the only way to get through to the government at this point is just to, just to fuck up their money. And this is the only way to get their attention where they, they do have to pass something, you know, the line, no justice, no peace. There's going to be no peace until there's going to be justice. With all this going on, if the government would rather rather this go on than just prosecute four cops, right? What we want is justice. We want lives to be valued. If you're not prosecuting these cops, that means you don't value our lives. And as far as what I think women can do in our lives, I just, I'm not really sure because women are also targets. We're basically prey at this point. Cops are the predators. The justice system is the predators. Are the, 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 where, you know, we just can't catch a break. And we always have to be on our P's and Q's where there's no really time to relax, you know, no, we, where we can't be ourselves, you know. So that's just how I feel about that. My name is JC, 41 years old. I feel concerned for myself, for others. At this point, it's all about the physical aspect of it. I can deal with the mental aspect of things. I'm not saying that it's easier, but when they get physical, that's when you as a black man got to figure out what you're going to do next. And no matter what you do next, you know how it's going to play out. But you got to make a decision in the moment. I feel concerned about being forced to make decisions in the moment every single time I leave the house. You know, now I'm, I'm thinking like a father. I got little ones. So before, you know, I understood what my actions, the reactions of others based upon my physical, you know, being a black man. That's not even a small black man, a big black man. So you overcompensate for that in other aspects of your life. But when you leave the house sometimes, you realize that this might be the last I'm leaving the house. 
I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying that's what, as a black man, that's something that you just learn to deal with every single time you leave the house. That's what we deal with every time we interact with other people. We realize that it can go from zero to 100. It's not even about being justified anymore. It's just about you're a black man. And with that comes preconceived you know, assumptions about who you are and what you into and everything. You got to overcompensate. You know, we've been practicing, you know, social distancing six feet because, you know, mm. you get too close, you know, I, how things going to go. So that ain't about nothing different, but I feel concerned for myself and for others because I know how easy things can just escalate. And, and once again, you know, as a black person, you learn to deal with the mental aspect of what that means. But when it gets physical and that's where it's going right now, everything just turning so physical. At some point, it's going to be out of everybody's hands. So that, that's, that's the concern. You know what I mean? What do we what do we really accomplish? I mean, you know, thinking as a father, I'm thinking of solutions of how to try to interact with people and all the other stuff as a black man. Just people approaching you, you know, not just a black man, that's a father. You just be, you gotta be mindful of that. You know, there's so many things that we deal with, but the physical aspect of it is what has me concerned. As far as the relationships with other people, just make sure that they're peaceful and meaningful. I think valuing that aspect of it. I mean, be our biggest supporter, not our bit not necessarily our biggest, biggest critic. But our biggest supporter, we know we know we're human, we know our flaws, we know our shortcomings, we deal with that shit every time we leave the house. So make sure the relationships are meaningful. You you can still give us feedback, you can still let us know where we're falling short, but it's not just you know, finding some good things to say about us too every now and then. You'd be surprised at what we appreciate, the little things too. You know, I appreciate whatever that might be, something small. It means a lot to us. We don't hear a lot of appreciation. So I would say that. Thank you for this opportunity to just speak and be heard. You know, oftentimes as a black man, they don't really listen to what we're saying. So for you giving black men a platform to just express themselves, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, asking the right questions, what can you do? You know, that's that's decent. You know, that's necessarily something that we hear a lot. We just keep getting dumped on, dumped more on you, dumped more on you. What can we do to help? That's, that's definitely appreciated. Well, my name is uh, Ulysses Stretch Garrett. I'm 44 years old. And how do I feel post- the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Honestly, the, the, my, my, my core feeling is just a, a sense of uh, frustration, given the fact that you know, we've been down this road numerous times for the past 400 years, at the point where the black man's life is not really deemed important, nor is just the black, or black life in general, just isn't deemed important and that we continue to go down this, this, this road of people just continuously being frustrated to the point of rioting, looting. But how many more times do we need to riot? How many more times do we need to loot in order for voices to be heard? Obviously, the powers that be don't give a damn, nor do they care, because at the end of the, end of the day, and this is just my opinion, I think you know, we're at the point of folks trying to eradicate the Black race and by any means necessary, and how much more are we gonna take of them continuing to, to take us out one by one? If we're, you know, given the point where they always try to say, oh, black on black crime, that, that's not really a, a, a true, true thing because you're more prone to be killed randomly by anybody else outside of your own race just because if you're just in the place of, of wherever it may be and someone is in the mood to just kill, start killing, they don't care if you're black, white, yellow, brown, whatever. You're going. They just want to be. They just want to kill people, and that's case in point with what's going on now. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say that all police officers are bad. And honestly, I hate that even that phrase. Like, oh, all police officers. That's just like saying, well, all black people are bad, or all you know, who cares? You know, bad is bad, and 
when people continue to use their source of, you know, privilege and power based off of a uniform and a badge to go out here and just deliberately take people out and kill people for no apparent reason. And we have an issue. And I don't know what the problem is, whether there's vetting for these particular people. It needs to be done better in the sense of people wanting to become police officers. What's that background check like? What's that uh, psychological test like when it's time for people to become officers? Because honestly, I think you have a lot of people who just want to play war because they, you know, <laughs> maybe weren't able to cut it in the armed forces or maybe they were bullied in school or maybe whatever the case may be. And so this is a way for them to seek retribution on things that they had that were done bad to them in their eyes. And so now they have the, the capability and the power to do that via uh, becoming a police officer. And those are the wrong people that we have in that position. Then that, that needs to be eradicated even quicker than anything, because in order for people to have trust with these individuals who have been sworn to serve and protect, no one's going to trust somebody that they don't, you know, you, how, how are you going to protect somebody and, 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 and serve if the community doesn't trust you? At the end of the day, we're still dealing with individuals who are privy and pompous off of their predecessors, their ancestors' mentality of this elitism, this 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 hierarchy, this this I'm better than you because you know. And they may not say it, they may not think it in their minds, but just their day-to-day living, they benefit from this shit. And we're still being held down and stepped over and belittled and based off of the color of our skin. It just baffles me that this shit continues to happen, whether it be George Floyd, whether it be Eric Gardner, whether it be Emmett Till, whether it be whomever, this shit is still happening. And yet we still are going through trying to figure out what can we do? What you mean, what can we do? It's either time to stand up and fight back or continue to be be prey and let it hunt you down. How did you feel uh, seeing George Floyd in the position that he was in. That is the most heinous, deliberate sort of thing I've ever seen in my life. It made me feel frustrated, made me feel incensed, and it really made me not even want to see any white people. That's why I stayed in my house for a few days because that image of seeing that sort of incites you and it gets you riled up and it makes you want to seek retribution, you know, in, in a sense. Like, I never felt that sort of sort of rage and anger in my life, honestly. But when you con- constantly see that over and over and over again, it's going to put something in you. At first, I felt sad, felt empathy. But then I felt, as you continue to watch it, this, the rage starts to build up and the anger builds up. And, you know, that, I mean, I, that's, I guess that's, <laughs> that's all I got on that one. What can we do to make life a little easier for you within the home just or within the context of our friendships or our relationship? I think, I mean, it's just simple. Just be receptive in the sense of listening when someone has to say something and being present. That's all, that's all you can do, to be honest with you. Um, that, that's all I would ask of anybody, just to be, just to be present and available for, for conversations. My name is Trevar Jackson. I'm 45. Currently, I feel disheartened uh, based on the times that we live in. And I think part of that is because of our current president has, I think, stirred up the pot on things that were already there as far as being a Black man in the United States. 
and he's just really empowered some people to really act against minorities even more, including black men. Um, I think it's bigger than just black men, but as far as black man piece of it, I think a lot more white people, and I've seen it personally, are now feeling they can do and say whatever they want and get away with it. But now we're starting to highlight more of it. And I think we as a people have kind of lost that it was like something that was seriously going on. We had kind of started accepting certain things. So I feel like it's always been there, but I, I just feel like it's a sad day to be a black man because right now your word um, and how you treat it, it's like you're not respected. Another person could say anything about you and that's the truth, regardless of whether it's been validated or not. Um, with that, I think it's even a bigger burden on us as African-American men to not give them a reason to try to justify it on the back end for their actions. Meaning, like say the police officer or the CNN cameraman, you know, if he had acted out or said anything, you know, and he would have been rightfully so to act a certain way, then they could have said, oh, well, you know what? He was being belligerent. He wasn't, you know, listening to my orders. He wasn't doing whatever. Well, but if you did something wrong first, they're justifying that saying that's the reason why we did such and such after the fact. But I think now we have to be smarter and you have to eat your ego, you have to, in order to see the bigger picture, in order to survive and maybe not get killed, maybe not get locked up, you have to think smarter, like, and be strategic about it and try to use these times to make yourself more aware so that then you're going to have these kind of conversations with people. Like I've been having conversations with all of my siblings, there's four from two of them police officers. So we've been having conversations and covering every aspect of it um, right now. There's an anger but my anger is more directed and, and pointed. It's not just, I'm just, I'm like, I'm not mad at white people. I'm not mad at police officers because I don't think all police officers are bad, but it does stir a thing in me right now that in 2020 and for the last couple of years, you know, this racial tension against black men has definitely been like peaking. It's been slowly like rising um, to the point where, you know, do I honestly feel that this could happen to me? Yes. I feel like if I was driving down the street, wrong cop, wrong car, yes, it could something could probably happen to me. Would it be justified? No. I hate to say this, but I wasn't surprised. And, and that's really sad, that I wasn't surprised that a white cop had his knee on a black man's neck with him face down. He had already subdued him, so he wasn't a threat. Uh, the cop was standing there. But, you know, when you see it, it's like, I'm not surprised. It's sad that that's acceptable. How many times have we seen the, the TV show Cops? And if anybody has ever watched Cops, you're like, that's very standard for them to do that. Especially the African-American men, the first thing they're doing is throwing their knee right in the back of their, usually in their back, not on their neck. But that's the normal. And then when you see the other cops standing there, and you start hearing all the other information coming in that had him cuffed. You know, people were saying he couldn't breathe. And, and you can start getting all the details and you get a full picture. You're like, yeah, so what were you doing at that point? oh, you were just basically trying to establish your dominance over top of this black man. That's basically what it came down to. And that's what a lot of this, when I'm talking about our current president and a lot of things that you're seeing and um, uh, a lot of things that have happened even in Baltimore with the riots that happened recently um, in the last couple of years, it's about white men, unfortunately, and sometimes white women, trying to establish their dominance over another minority. And it just so happens that as long as, you know, We've been here, it's been predominantly white males establishing their dominance over black men as black men have, you know, now we, since I think we've taken a greater foothold of the economy, we've, we're doing a lot better and so forth and so on. I think that's kind of like the red meat 
of trying to keep us down by doing certain things. So some people feel empowered to do it. Some people feel like we're a threat and it's, it's not right, but it's, it's a shame that it's starting to become the norm, not starting, that it is the norm. So when, like, when I see stuff like that, it, I hate to say that I'm, I, I'm not even really shocked by it. I think we've become predisposed to getting used to seeing that type of behavior from our quote unquote law enforcement. When you're talking about what can the women in our lives do, I think a reassurance that when you go out there, like, I really want you to come home. You know what I mean? It's not worth dying for, you know, because in a situation like this, it's just so over the top that I, I don't know if any solid advice could prepare you for how to deal with that as a black man when a white man is trying to establish dominance over you. Even if you lay down and you're laying there, you're still helpless. You, you can't do anything. Like I said, just trying to be smarter about it. That's, I think that's the most solid advice you could possibly give is just be smart and, and bring yourself home. My name is Bert and I'm 46. I feel a lot of different ways, uh, but ultimately I feel concerned, thankful, and hopeful. Uh, concerned is obvious in the sense that another black man has been killed. Concerned that initially when the news came out as clear and undeniable as it was that it may not make a difference given the long list of other black men and, and women that we've seen killed in the last few years. Concerned that this man has loved ones who are having to see this play out on the national stage. And also concerned that there are a lot of people who clearly still don't care and who are unaffected by this. So to, to give a little more detail about the concern, uh, when I first saw the video, I'd spoken with a couple of people and, you know, a lot of people have said they can't watch it. They can't stand watching it. And, and I understand that. Uh, for me personally, I felt like I needed to watch it. So what stood out to me really was, again, that it was, it was clear. It was in broad daylight. There wasn't anything to dispute as to the blatant nature of the murder, right? But really what jumped out at me was realizing that I was watching a man die on the ground. And initially, we didn't know that he died there. Uh, you know, the initial reports were that, you know, the paramedics took him and all that. It was later that we found out that he actually was unresponsive by the time they'd gotten him. So, you know, sometimes the media even can spin those things and say uh, the person died of complications later on at the hospital, things like that. Well, once they came out with that, we realized they, they took that man's life on the spot. You know, you think about watching TV and watching movies and you see how death is depicted in the movies. It's very, very dramatized, uh, whether they're shot or whether they're on their deathbed surrounded by family and loved ones. And they say this dramatic goodbye and they breathe their last breath. And you realize that when I was watching this, the noises that George Floyd made were not the normal ones that we're used to seeing in Hollywood productions, right? Um, these were noises that came deep, deep, deep from, from within his body. And, and you could say it was coming from his spirit, you know? And as you watch the video, you know, as, as I watched it longer went on, I realized that his tone is changing, everything is changing. And that at some point, this man is aware that his life is leaving his body. Um, and so aware that uh, the panic sets in and then also that he calls out for his mother. And at that moment, that, that really jumped out of me because I'm also, he, he was 46 also. And then finding out later from Steven Jackson when he did one of his interviews that George Floyd's mother passed away several years ago. So, so what that said to me was either his panic had reached such a point and also that his body was starting to shut down that he didn't realize there was nothing that his mother could do for him because she's gone, you know? So either he's, his faculties are, are gradually starting to diminish and his, you know, the oxygen in his blood, the oxygen reaching his brain, all these things are, are starting to change to where he can't make logic of the fact that calling out to his mother is going to be a futile effort. Or you could say that 
maybe he somewhere deep down in there was conscious in that moment and realized that they were taking his life and was saying to his mother that wherever she is, he's getting ready to be there with her. Either way you interpret that, that's a scary thought, right? So uh, once I found out his mother passed away, it, it really, really drove home to me, the, the level of panic and the, the level of horror and, and just how horrible the whole situation was, right? And then I would say, um, thankful to be alive, thankful that as a black man, every single day I leave the house, um, but for the grace of God, I could be the next George Floyd, any of us could be, right? Thankful that this was caught on tape, thankful that it was as blatant as it was and as clear as it was, and thankful that there were people around to capture it and hoping that even, even if there was only a small chance this might lead to something bigger because we've seen so many that have led to nothing. They've led to excuses and lost video that we can't produce that, that would have proven the wrongdoing on the part of law enforcement, things like that. So thankful that despite the, the horrible murder that occurred, thankful that the evidence is, is very clear and, and, and that the reaction was immediate from the masses that something had to be done. Thankful to see people uh, motivated across the nation, thankful to see people who don't just look like me and don't just look like George Floyd getting involved, thankful to see people looking out for each other, taking care of each other and then uniting, even 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 the law enforcement in some of these cities, um, standing on the side with the protesters and things like that. I'm hopeful, not necessarily 100% optimistic yet, but hopeful that this is the catalyst for some major change in our society, major change in, in how black people are treated, major change in how law enforcement is held accountable, um, major change in, in how we all treat each other and, and major change politically at the top. So I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm still cautious, but I'm, but I'm hopeful. What can the women in my life do? I think that in general, what we can do for each other is to check on each other. Again, uh, the pandemic in and of itself already was or has been a pretty scary time. So the value in checking on one another can't be overstated. And, and I never thought early on when I first heard the news of, of George Floyd being killed, it didn't occur to me that I needed to talk to anyone or that I need to share my thoughts on, on how I was feeling. But I can say that the first time one of my friends who was a woman reached out and said, hey, how are you doing? How are you dealing with this? You know, I can't say the conversation was extremely deep. It was more, hey, I'm doing fine. I'm just taking it all in. This is horrible. I'm just kind of watching everything. But after the exchange, I truly appreciated the fact that she had reached out, not just to say, not, not just to check on me, but to specifically ask how I was doing in regard to this issue. And what I've seen is that in the days that have come since she first reached out, another one and another one and another one and another one um, have reached out. And I found that I truly do appreciate that my sisters have reached out to me specifically to ask me as a black man, how are you feeling about this? Are you OK? Right. So as 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 people, we all need to do more of that. Make sure we're all OK. Make sure that we're listening to one another. Uh, make sure that we're not holding it in. You know, whatever that outlet can be, whoever that can be. Just make sure that we're checking on each other and looking out for each other and taking care of each other. I am Hakeem, and this is how I feel. Haphazardly, I'm going to explain it. It is not something that's easy to explain because it's also a fabric of who I am because of what I look like and how I'm presented in the world. Our problem, my problem, is not just here in the United States. It's not just in my mind. It's not for others to perceive that they understand. Because for each individual Black man, it is a little different. For instance, depending on your socioeconomic status, you can have a little bit of, of, of fear and, and, and animosity. When you're in a lower socioeconomic system uh, level, you have more fear. One, because there are things you have to do to make your family conditions work. 
and that may not be in line with what is quote unquote right for your your surroundings. And I'm not saying that I advocate anything, anyone doing anything illegal. But the reality is, everybody has done something illegal in terms of ethnicities in this in this country. So with that in mind, I I swirl all this around in my mind because I think about it from this standpoint. This country was based on. It's not just this country. That's my problem. It's not just this country. I've talked to cats from Cameroon. I talked to cats from Ghana. I talk. It happens all over the world, and part of it is the perception of black men. We're either feared or mistrusted. And immediately, if you come to a, a conversation or you come to somebody, anybody, no matter what color or what gender, with that sort of halfway mistrust or half conversation, you're not going to listen to what they're saying. You're not going to be trusted. So we feel that. You know, it's not like we're, we don't feel it. We feel that. And when we feel that, it's like, no matter what I say, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter at all. So the way this plays out, I have no control over it. Even if I present to you in a way that you can understand it, which I've been taught to in doctrine to do so, you're still not going to listen to me. I remember uh, watching a YouTube video of a, of a black man, fairly light-skinned, talking to a white, uh, a white reporter. And I think it was in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And he was very animated and very uh, aggressive in his way of talk because that's how far we've been pushed. But the premise for what he said was, was very important. He said, in order for me to have a conversation about you, to, with you about racism, I have to come all the way over to your side of your lane to explain. I, in other words, I have to go 90% to your side, speak the way you want me to speak, uh, use the words you want me to use, dress the way you want me to dress so it's not... So you're not in fear in order to have this, this conversation. You only have to go 10%. And, then, and you expect me to be okay with that. Now, nothing's ever 50-50. Nothing's ever equal. And I get that. But the, the bottom line is if you don't come at least 40, we're not having a conversation. All I'm having is dialogue with somebody who's just going to shoot down the first thing I say. So that frustration coupled with the economic adversities that we go through because of the systemic racism that goes on in, in this country and around the world, not just here. It's frustrating to see this happen because now, you know, I'm supposed to keep my hands at 10 and 2. I'm supposed to not reach. I'm supposed to be clean. I'm supposed to make sure my stuff is lined up correctly. And even still, even after all that's done, I still get mistreated. How the hell am I supposed to feel about that if, one, I've actually seen brothers come back from Vietnam and, and, and World War II and still get treated like shit. These are people that fought for this country willingly, not drafted. These people went in. Tuskegee Airmen. I can go on and on and on. This, this is the legacy that I have built up in me, and I'm supposed to go out there and feel okay about this shit? My pain is the fact that none of this shit is equal or close to equal. That's the pain. You write it down that said all men have inalienable rights, all men are created equal. All men who? All white men. You know, and that's the weird thing about it. You know, it, it's, it's all perception. It's all this smoke and mirrors. As a brother, I'm tired of that. Don't give me smoke and mirrors, man. Just tell me the truth. If you don't like me, I can deal with that. You tell me you like me, and then you pull this underhanded stuff on me, of course I have animosity. And then I have lack of trust. And therefore, it builds lack of trust. And then that bridge gets wider. You know what I'm saying? It gets much wider. I don't hate anybody of any ethnicity. There is only one race. There's the human race. People keep the narrative going. There's one race. There's different ethnicities. If we, if one, if one ethnicity group has a problem, we all have a problem. It's the pebble on the lake. And then the, 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 the idea that you can explain this stuff out because, oh, you know, he didn't come with clean hands or, or he didn't show his hands or 
he didn't have registration or he didn't have a license. What does that have to do with a death sentence? The, the Constitution says you have a right to trial by a, a, a jury of your peers. This is what you wrote, but now it's not good enough for me. Help me, help me understand that. To be honest, the women in our lives have been the backbone of everything we do, everything. Our first thought, our first thing we're taught, the empathy that we do have is from the women in our lives. What I would say that you can do is continue what you're doing, continue to care about us, continue to talk to us, even if we're hard-headed and we don't, we don't seem like we're listening, we're listening, we're listening. It's just that there is so much rage from being treated so poorly that it's like, you know, I understand you, L. I I hear you, but you know, this mf is disrespecting me and I've been doing, I'm doing my part. I went 90% and he's still doing it. So what am I supposed to do then? So now in my, uh, in, in my mind, I'm looking like I'm wasting all that you gave me, wasting all that you gave me on this cat right here. And he's never going to get it, but he's going to continue to come at me. Now, I understand Martin Luther King. I understand Mahatma Gandhi. I understand also Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton. I understand those concepts and those, that's what we're caught. But for what, what we would require is just the same consistency, the backbones that, that you give us to continue moving forward and keeping our cool. I mean, that, that's the only thing that I could say, well, hold on a second. I just had a thought. One other thing you guys can do, insist that we talk to somebody. Because I figure a lot of times when I have, have frustration like, like this, I have to talk it out because I, I, I'll be likely to do something stupid. And I know it. So I kind of talk myself down. And it would be helpful so a lot of times if we have somebody to talk us down off the ledge. Hello, my name is Eric. I'm uh, 49. And as it relates to George Floyd's murder, I have to honestly say that I have gone through probably every possible emotion one could go through, you know, in watching the video repeatedly, uh, the multiple angles, you know, emotions ranging from anger, uh, most obviously probably, you know, frustration, um, that out of body, you know, feeling that you just, you're watching something that you just can't, you know, honestly believe is taking place, you know, where people are chiming in and making comments about the situation, you know, the, the house is burning, you know, and then, you know, watching that video, seeing the officer, with his hand in his pocket as if this was just another day for him. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I saw it, I, I thought about Rodney King and how I felt when we watched that video and how just blatantly and absolutely ridiculous it was that anyone could make the argument um, that they were, um, you know, under some threat uh, in danger, more specifically with George Floyd, you know, we're, we're talking about a $20 issue. Someone called in, you know, for a counterfeit bill. I, you know, it's almost seeming like they, the police were all too eager to respond to this situation for officers, you know, to what amounts to be a $20 bill. Absolutely pathetic um, in terms of what I think any human being should expect from the individuals that are tasked with serving and protecting them. Um, these four individuals are not worthy of the shield. You know, the, the Minnesota, uh, excuse me, uh, Minneapolis Police Department shield, um, there's no room for it. I'm Jamon Botts. I'm a week away from 49 years old, and I am 
tremendously disappointed in America. When I think about the events that have transpired over the course of the last week, I hone in more on the response than I do the action. Uh, the actions have taken place for years. Um, I think that they are more prevalent now because everyone has a camera or a video device on their hip or in their pocket. The reaction is what's most disappointing. I would have expected America to step up and jump in when the egregious act actually occurred. And instead, more people are seeing their entry point to the discussion and they're being upset with what's going on more around the riots that are occurring as a result. I don't condone the riots. I don't think that it is a way to accomplish really anything with respect to what has occurred. I do, however, uh, view it as a release. And I liken it to when the University of Alabama wins a national championship and all of the white students at Alabama take to the streets to celebrate and turn over cars and set them on fire. That's also a riot. It is not in any way, shape, or form a response to what happened. It is a re release of emotion. And I think that that is what we're seeing now in America as a result of what so many people have seen uh, on TV with George Floyd. The second set of videos that surfaced from a different angle that showed three people on George Floyd's back and George Floyd gasping for air and screaming for his mother, who I now have come to understand is not even alive, is absolutely disgusting. The reason that police, in my understanding and estimation, put someone in a prone position on the ground with their hands cut behind their back is because it is a position that limits their ability to react, limits their ability to go on some kind of offensive posture. So the, the idea that he was any harm to them at that point was just a lie. And for that man to stand on his neck that way with his knee for a period of almost 10 minutes, that knee is the one that, you know, we're looking at now. But Colin Kaepernick taking a knee for the same reason or for a reason to make us not have to see that, that image that we've seen so often now is one that elicits verbiage like sons of bitches from the president of the United States. Also, I want to speak on the fact that he has been, the President of the United States has been absolutely silent on this issue while cities in America are burning down. That isn't leadership at all. He's an ass. And I can't wait for him to be out of office. You're asking how can we help? It certainly is not a burden that I think should fall to the women in our lives. Um, I think it is our role as a community, as a Black community, as an American community to just stand up and speak out. And I don't mean speak out by smashing windows or romping through the streets, putting yourself in any kind of additional danger, but take the time to think about what you can do to affect some change on any small way uh, for white America. You asked me about black women, but I'm gonna speak to white America. Step up and understand what this means to us, understand how it makes us feel, and don't be complicit in it by being silent. 
speak out. I've actually been uh, encouraged by the number of people, certainly my Black community on social media has raised their voice uh, to the heavens for this. But I've been encouraged by the number of white people on my social media feed that have also taken that step out of their comfort zone and posted messages of love and encouragement on their own social media pages that, quite frankly, won't be seen as welcome by so many of their peers. So I, I, I think it, it doesn't fall to necessarily just the women in our lives. It falls to uh, America in general to just change, change your attitude, understand that we are all people and that we are all equal. Well, my name is Eric Cherry. I'm 52 years old and will be 53 in less than about three weeks. I feel hurt, angry, afraid, and disheartened in many, many ways, actually, is how I feel. Seeing the images that I've seen over the past few days and continue to see and hearing the conversations uh, on the news over and over and over again, continuously. How do you not, how do you not react to that? I mean, without words, images speaks volumes to me. I mean, you can tell tons just by someone's reaction or no reaction. So how do you not pull back applying pressure to someone who obviously is beyond a certain point of being able to respond? Um, and so that to me just solidifies that, that sense of insensitivity and I don't care um, is sort of what it made me feel. And again, that just goes to that part of anger and how do you harness that and move forward and put that into some type of positive reaction to such a very negative and sort of almost just discounted way or value of someone's life or existence. The thing that women can do is continue to tell your Black men that you love them almost every time they leave, because it's, it, honestly, you, you never know what's waiting on the other side of the door when you close that door and leave, no matter how innocent you know your venture out into the world may be. You never know what's waiting for us. Continue to empower them, tell them you know that they matter, um, make them feel important, and really just to try to educate the young Black men that are coming up and seeing these images to just kind of don't lose faith, don't lose hope. We need to continue to dig deeper and, um, and challenge you know, the injustice in the system, fight the fear that we feel sometimes when we want to speak up and say something. You just can't give up, you can't lose hope, you just can't lose faith. You just gotta, gotta keep trying to push forward, you know? So my name is David Crockett. I am a, uh, a black man at 54 years old, uh, living in New York City who, as long as I can remember, have been fully aware that not only am I Black, but when people see me, the first thing they see is Black before they see anything else. And that is not just white people, that is Black people and white people. And uh, Jamie Foxx posted a video showing this white man and these two officers who are also white trying to pull him out of a car and he wouldn't get out. And his girlfriend, wife, whatever else it is, is recording it the entire time. And she says, uh, let's just say his name was Joey. Joey, stop. Joey, stop resisting. Stop resisting. You're going to get a charge. You're going to get a charge. Stop resisting. At no point did she say, Joey, stop resisting. They're going to kill you. They could kill you. You could get killed. They finally get this white man out of the car after, you know, fighting with him, literally fighting with him, a female white officer and another white male officer who's in the car trying to push him out while the female, this guy, they get him out on the ground. He tussles with them. He takes one of their nightsticks. He beats one of the officers with it. He gets up. 
gets in their car and drives the fuck off. At what point do they shoot this motherfucker? At what point do they tase this motherfucker? At what point do they choke this motherfucker? They don't. So my problem is not with the fact that the officers treated him like that in the first place where they did not get deadly violent or deadly force with him. My problem is the comments. When you scroll through the comments, this is what you see. And, and, and I scrolled through a significant amount of them. There were 1,700 of them. I don't know when I stopped, right? But the majority of the comments from white people were, when black people deal with the own black-on-black crime in their own communities, then they can start talking about white-on-white crime. How is that? How, you, they will never identify with what it's like to be a black person in America. Because the majority of comments from black people were, see, this is what we're talking about. There needs to be a reverse of roles where white people have experienced 400 or 500 years of slavery, oppression, Jim Crow, and everything else, just like we did, in order for them to one day say, yeah, see, that's what the fuck I'm talking about. No, the comments were, those are two different people. Those are two different cops. You can't equate the same. Deal with the violence in your own community. Yeah, it was bad what happened to Floyd, but that doesn't mean it's okay to... You will never identify. Uh, so, so when you look at the Floyd video, right, and he's got his knee down on his neck, and the guy is basically, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then he starts to go into, please, please. And if you look close enough, when he says, please, the officer with his knee on his neck smirks. He smiles. It's this feeling of authority. They need to have authority over somebody because that's how they feel powerful. They need to have that authority. That authority felt good to him. And so what if people are recording this? So what if he dies? Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, even if I get arrested, the chances of people convicting me and me going to jail, and from where I sit as a white person looking out on this, I'm speaking if I'm the officer, is slim to none. At the worst, hey, I might get fired, and I, but I'm never gonna go to jail. They're definitely never going to give me the death penalty. They're definitely going to never going to charge me with murder one. What is the worst that could possibly happen? So I am scared for my son. They do not believe that we feel pain the same way they do. They just don't. You know, there's a whole bunch of rioting going on, right? Am I up for rioting? No. Am I going to go out and riot and loot? Absolutely not, right? But this ain't no different than the 60s when the fucking uh, uh, Civil Rights Act got passed, right? Martin Luther King was protesting peacefully. And there was riots going on in Watts and every other place else. It takes both. Both are required. Unfortunately, that's what it takes to make progress. Motherfuckers wasn't happy when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling peacefully. That wasn't good enough. It's never good enough. They ostracized him. They killed Martin Luther King for peaceful protest. The rioting comes with it. There has to be a fear of this in order to go that way. I got to be scared of what's going to happen over here in order for me to move over here. And that's what everything. The other thing that bothers me, right, is, you know, these comments about, you know, black on black crime. Where do they get that from? TV, rap music, because the majority of these people who are saying that shit, they've never personally experienced it themselves. So where do you get that from? TV. OK, you watch Ozark lately. Them white people be killing each other. Them white people be doing drugs. Them white people be selling drugs. How much of that shit is real? They didn't just make that shit up out of their fucking ass. It's modern day Jim Crow. Jim Crow is you use this water fountain over here and they have to use this beat up piece of shit water fountain over here. So because I get to use this nice clean water fountain over here while they use this piece of shit water fountain over here, 
I'm better than them. Whatever happens to them is not the same thing that happens to me. Whatever they go through is their own problems because I'm better than them. White people should not be complaining about black people stealing from them until they start deal with the white people that steal from white people. Ain't no Bernie Madoffs. Where the black Bernie Madoffs at? They don't exist. So if I should stop worrying about black crime, black crime, then you should stop worrying about white on white crime before you start complaining about what black people do to white people. No? Nah. I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm not explaining this shit to these motherfuckers no more. I'm tired. The last thing I'll say, because I know my time is limited, right? So here goes the bullshit. Here starts the bullshit. Um, I read, and I don't know how true this is, that the uh, autopsy on Floyd says that intoxication, poor health, his heart condition, in addition to the knee on his neck, contributed to his death. So here we go. The officer is not fully responsible for it. A lot of it had to do with him. It's his fault. If he had been in better health and he wasn't drunk, he would have survived. Who's the woman that was shot in her home when the police busted in with the wrong warrant? She lost her job a week ago. So fucking what? She was fired. What about the jogger that these white people dragged out into the street and started shooting and beating him? Well, he went on to a construction site. He was probably there looking to steal. The dude on Staten Island out here that they strangled, he was overweight. It's always the responsibility of the oppressed to fix what the problem is. We never put the onus and responsibility on the oppressor to just stop the bullshit. I'm done. I'm just gonna keep my, my boy as far away from these white people as I possibly can. In business, in the 30 something years that I have been in business, right? For the first 15 years of it, it was difficult. It was tough because there were not very many people in the business or bosses of color in business when I was growing up, right? And it was difficult. They could say whatever they want, they could be whatever they want. And the idea was, this is you coming up by your bootstraps. This is you learning the business, you learning how to survive. Cutting you off in meetings, telling you you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. There was none of this, we do all of these group meetings now and everybody's nice to each other and we wanna care about each other's feelings. There was none of that bullshit, it was singular. I'm the boss, you work for me, you do what the fuck I say, right, wrong, or indifferent. I noticed a shift in that. And the shift in that happened when black people started becoming bosses. When Michael Jordan became a fucking boss, when Magic Johnson became a boss and started owning and buying companies, when rap music got rap moguls and started opening their own companies and black people started becoming bosses, then all of a sudden, we need to be different with the way we deal with our employees. We need to be different with the way we treat each other. And from where I sit, that was not by mistake. That was not just something that fucking happened by osmosis. That was white people realizing that they was gonna have to eat the same shit from black people that we had been eating from them all of our fucking lives and they didn't want to deal with it, but they knew that they was gonna have to come work for us in some capacity or some form. So let's push this, let's care for everybody's feelings movement. That even though you're the boss, this should be a group thing because that's what's better for the, for the company overall. Community is now better. It's no longer singular, it's community. There's nothing anybody can do. This is not our problem. This is the most progressive white person's problem. White people need to get behind this movement. White people need to lead this movement. Otherwise, we ain't going nowhere. There's nothing nobody can do. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. What can women do? Nothing, it has to be white women. If you're talking about what can women do, I naturally assume you're asking about black women. No, it needs to be white women. White women need to lead this movement. 
Since the recording date of this episode, ex-police officer Derek Chauvin's charges were expanded to include the more serious one of second-degree murder. The other three officers, Thomas Lane and Alexander King, who helped restrain George Floyd, and Tutau, who stood nearby and did nothing, are charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. As far as convictions go, well, that remains to be seen as it relates to justice being served swiftly. I think the manner in which George Floyd was murdered as we watched will spark the change on how racism is perceived in America. I truly believe that. I'm not sure it will end it, but I think it will shift. And my hope is that transformational change will come out of that shift. Real change. Not something we're going to talk about for the next month or two and forget about, but laws being passed, bills being passed, new policies being put in place. I was watching CNN recently because my TV stays on CNN and Martin Davidson was on and he is a professor, senior associate dean and global chief diversity officer at the Darden School of Business. And he quoted a classic phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And he went on to explain that it's the whole idea that the way we're used to doing things so determines our behaviors and it determines our actions. So any initiative, any program, any order has a real hard time taking root. And so what we really need to do is to begin to change fundamental processes. How do we do that, right? How do we challenge racism? Because you got to challenge something to evoke some different way of thinking because racism is a learned response. And if something is taught, it can be untaught by changing the miseducation of what has been taught. And that happens through re-education, dispelling fear and this myth of superiority that because you look different than me, you are inferior. Differences have been looked at as a negative in this country for 500 years, and that shit needs to be disrupted and dismantled. So if we really care about what the future looks like, the future of America, the legacy of America, and changing what we know to be its legacy, it starts now. Racism is a deep rabbit hole. That's painfully clear. But if we're going to make changes, we better start digging, right? Get your tools out, sit in the ugly and uncomfortable truth, listen and learn. And that's something we all need to do as a human race, listen and learn. And a great place to start would be with Jane Elliott. She is a racial educator and human rights activist. And God bless her. God bless her. She's most famously known for her exercise in discrimination with her third grade classroom back in the 60s. And this is a classroom with all white Christian little kids. And she let them find out what it feels like to be something other than white in the United States of America. She split them up according to the color of their eyes, blue-eyed, brown-eyed, and treated those that had their own color eye for the day the way this country has traditionally treated Blacks, Native Americans, Asians, Jews, all those that are different in appearance or religion. She went on to conduct the same exercise slash experiment with college students and adults in different countries. The kids understood the concept once it was learned, but some of the adults, oof, they were combative. They were combative because they never thought to think of how it must be for someone that doesn't look like them. It's fascinating to watch, I promise you. Type in her name on YouTube, 
and learn. I'm going to end this episode with a quote worth repeating over and over and over again. Prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. It's a choice, right? This would be a good time to have commitment issues. Thank you for tuning in to Ellen the Great Podcast. Please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And for more information and social media links, visit my website at ellenthegreat.com. Till next time.